black and white, there's gray. There are half-truths. Some rooms are dim, but not dark. Some things are medium-sized. Sometimes there are ways to remain morally neutral between the extremes of good and evil. And as we all know from The Princess Bride, there's a big difference between being mostly dead and all dead. (laughs) Mostly dead is slightly alive. However, when it comes to life lived before the God of the Bible, we are presented with sharp, opposing absolutes. Psalm 1 famously seems to describe only two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The Old Testament poets often use the metaphor of traveling along a path or a road to depict humans living life, conducting their day-to-day business under the all-seeing view of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. Jesus, likewise, presents only two ways. Near the conclusion of the Kingdom Life Discourse, also known as the Sermon on the Mount, he summons people to choose between two gates, the narrow gate and the wide gate. Each gate opens up to a road or a way. The narrow gate opens up to the hard way. Tribulation trail, I called it in a previous sermon. While the wide gate opens up to the easy way. Roomy road, we could call it. Each road leads to a different destination. The narrow gate and tribulation trail leads to eternal life. But the wide gate and roomy road leads to eternal destruction. But some might want to ask, Jesus, isn't there a third road? Isn't there like a bumpy boulevard or something that's, you know, kind of bumpy, but overall not so bad? Pastor Ray Ortland says, we might prefer three ways to choose from. A rotten life of folly over at one extreme, a super-duper life of wisdom over at the other extreme, but in the middle, a half-decent life of mediocrity that we don't mind settling for. Some might even say that that's more accurately reflective of our lives. My life isn't always dominated by tribulation. Does that mean I'm not on the hard road that leads to life? And my life isn't always characterized by ease. Does that mean I'm not on the easy road that leads to destruction? How do these two ways fit with human experience? Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount. After describing these two options, he describes two different kinds of people. And he metaphorically depicts people as trees. There are good trees and there are bad trees. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. But don't most trees in nature sometimes bear good fruit and sometimes bear bad fruit? And aren't there trees whose quality of fruit is just kind of meh? Finally, to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus again describes two different kinds of people. There are wise people and there are foolish people. Wise people are depicted as building their houses on a rocky foundation, while fools are depicted as building their houses on sand. The wise people's houses endure storms. Fools' houses get completely destroyed by storms. But aren't there some immature people, you know, not particularly wise, but not fools, who build their houses on an unlevel foundation, 
when storms come, their houses might get damaged, but they don't get knocked down. The Bible has many more portrayals of only two ways to live. How are we to understand this way of characterizing human life and human destiny, particularly in light of our experience? First of all, let's simply recall that the Bible is not naive about the complexity of human life in this fallen, broken world. The narratives of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, provide abundant examples of the messiness of human life that doesn't seem to fit into these neat, polar opposite categories. For example, Noah was described as a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Yet, not long after God preserved righteous and blameless Noah from the destruction of the flood, along with his family, Noah drank himself drunk. Has Noah, at that point, stepped off the path of righteousness and onto the path of wickedness? Or take David, the man after God's own heart, which, by the way, probably had nothing to do with David's character. A man after God's own heart, most likely, is simply a vivid way of describing a man whom God has chosen without reference to why God chose him. Nevertheless, in the Psalms, David often sings of his own blamelessness, yet the scriptures reveal his high-handed rebellion in his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Can a person choose to go back and forth between the road that leads to life and the road that leads to destruction? The kinds of things David did in that episode are the kinds of things that characterize people walking on the way of the wicked, the road that leads to destruction. I raise all these questions this morning to help us think carefully about what the Bible is doing in passages like this. In our passage this morning, Proverbs chapter 4, verses 10 to 19, we are again confronted with only two ways to live. When we remember that this is meant to be a metaphor, a word picture of sorts, we can perhaps handle these absolutes the way they were intended. There are indeed only two possible destinies for human beings, resurrected eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, or eternal punishment in hell. And there is certainly only one way to get to the new creation, and that's through Jesus. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the gate that opens up to the narrow road, tribulation trail. The way of life The people walking on tribulation trail is characterized by righteousness and wisdom. Everything outside of that can indeed be lumped together as the one alternative. So, yes, in the grand scheme of things, there really are only two ways to live. Yet, we dare not press these metaphors too far. Certainly, the life of the wise, the life of the righteous, the life of followers of Jesus is going to continue to include sin, disobedience, and failure. That's part of the hardness of the narrow road. So when we sin as Christians, we don't have to fret that this is an indicator that we're actually not on the narrow road, that we're actually on the other road, the highway to hell. Indeed, 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
This is a, pers- a, a purpose statement for the letter of 1 John. But it actually fits for the whole Bible. God has given his word to us in written form, all of it, so that we may not sin. And it instructs us what to do when we do sin. Admit it, quit it, and correct it. Christians admit our sin, repent from our sin, and move on to obedience. We can do this because we have confidence that Jesus is our advocate, our righteous advocate, who always lives to intercede on our behalf. We fear no condemnation when we sin because he has experienced the punishment we deserve for our sins. Interestingly, Proverbs 4, 10 to 19 depicts the two ways differently than a passage like Psalm 1. Psalm 1 had characterized the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked, natural opposites. However, in our passage this morning, we're going to see the way of wisdom contrasted with the way of the wicked. This is common in the book of Proverbs. There is a tight connection between wisdom and righteousness, so much so that wisdom can be contrasted with wickedness. Likewise, as we'll see later in the book, foolishness is tightly connected with, with, with wickedness. We return to listening to Solomon addressing his son. Let's hear him describe wisdom way in Proverbs 4, 10 to 13. Follow along. Proverbs, Proverbs 4, 10 to 13. My son, hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Last week, we looked at how listening to Solomon's spirit-inspired teaching was considered to be the key to discernment. And obeying the instruction of God's wisdom found in God's word was considered to be the key to wisdom. Here, Solomon indicates that heeding his authoritative words is the key to life. That lines up with Jesus' instruction we alluded to earlier. In Matthew 7, 24, Jesus said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. It's this wise man whose house survives through the storms. Likewise, heeding Solomon's instruction will enable his son and his readers, including us, to endure the storms of life and to experience a long life. Now, of course, this is not taking into account God's providence, whereby God sometimes determines that a wise, godly person might die young. We must remember to hold what we read in the book of Proverbs together with what we read in other parts of Scripture, particularly other biblical wisdom literature, like the book of Job. However, in light of the broader teaching of Scripture, especially Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7, we should recognize that this Old Testament promise of long life to the wise who follow God's wisdom foreshadows the promise of eternal life to all who follow Jesus, not as a reward for work accomplished or as a compensation for work done, but as a gift of grace. It's not just the commands of wisdom that we must hear and accept. It's also the promises of grace in the gospel that we must hear and accept. In any case, in verse 11, 
Solomon claims to have discharged his fatherly duty faithfully. It is in verse 11 that the metaphor of the path or the road is introduced by saying, I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. He is basically telling his son, I've done my job. I have brought you up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You must now live accordingly. Wisdom way is expanded by the phrase paths of uprightness, a phrase we could translate straight paths. This takes us back to Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And the promise is he will make straight your paths. It is through Solomon's spirit-inspired instruction. It is through the scriptures that the Lord straightens our paths. Straight paths aren't necessarily free of obstacles. However, straight paths are the quickest to reach our destination. Isn't it true that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line? Regardless of the obstacles on the path, the destination is guaranteed for those who are in Christ. God's wisdom revealed in God's word will enable us to keep journeying on the path, navigating the obstacles, avoiding the ditches, so that we reach the destination. That's the point. And that's what verse 12 promises. Note the key word stumble throughout this passage. It shows up at the end of verse 12, at the end of verse 16, and verse 19. Walking and even running on wisdom way will not be restricted or tripped up. Again, there are plenty of obstacles, plenty of stumbling blocks along the road, but living according to God's wisdom will ensure that we keep making progress, moving in the right direction. In the first line of verse 13, Solomon speaks of instruction, reflecting a Hebrew word that speaks of training. This is not so much an intellectual word. It doesn't reflect the kind of teaching you get from a lecture or in a classroom. It's more like the lab section of a science class or the exercises required in a physical education class. As one commentator elaborates, to keep hold of discipline is like committing oneself to an athlete's regimen of a wise diet, exercise, and training. By limiting themselves in this way, athletes are set free to run in top form and speed without stumbling. Here, he depicts this training as something his son and we readers must hold tightly and refuse to let go. As sometimes happens when I'm reading the Bible, a phrase reminds me of a line from a movie or literature. There's a scene from Star Wars Episode Two in which young Anakin Skywalker drops his lightsaber among a chaotic jumble of flying vehicles, and his master, Obi-Wan Kenobi, happens to catch it. When Obi-Wan catches up with Anakin a bit later, he hands him his lightsaber and lectures his impatient pupil, next time, try not to lose it. This weapon is your life. That encounter captures the message Solomon is seeking to get across to his son regarding the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. In fact, he basically says the same words in verse 13. Solomon is now mixing his metaphors. He shifts from wisdom as a road or a path on which we walk to wisdom as a bride. Lady Wisdom returns yet again. Whereas earlier, from David's lesson in verses 1 to 9, we heard about how Lady Wisdom will guard us, Solomon here commands us to guard Lady Wisdom. 
She is your life, Solomon insists. What does he mean? God's wisdom must define us. Our identity must be shaped by God's wisdom. Here we must again recall Paul's words to the Colossians. In Colossians 2, 3, we, as we have observed several times in this series, Paul tells us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. But then in Colossians 3, 4, we are reminded that Christ is your life. Thus, Paul recognizes how Lady Wisdom points forward prophetically to Jesus Christ. So for us Christians, our identity must be shaped by Christ. It is Christ who must define us. To be a Christian is to be in Christ. And to be in Christ is to be in the process of being conformed to His image. As God's Spirit applies God's Word to our lives, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. In order to further clarify wisdom way for his son, Solomon instructs him to avoid the alternative, wickedness way. Let's listen to his words from verses 14 to 17. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. Verses 14 and 15, Solomon issues six rapid-fire commands to urgently deter his son from taking a single step onto that other road I'm calling here wickedness way. This is a strong encouragement for us to not dabble with sin. If I'm allowed two Star Wars quotes in one sermon, I am reminded here of Yoda's classic warning to Luke Skywalker, and I will not imitate his voice so that you can all understand what I am saying. Once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. Consume you, it will, as it did Obi-Wan's apprentice. Now, what kinds of things did he have in mind when he said, start down the dark path? Things like anger, fear, and aggression. Internal attitudes that then influence outward behavior. Jesus spoke similarly. Matthew 5, 21 and 22 You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anger in the heart breaks the prohibition, you shall not murder. Anger in the heart is like taking a step onto wickedness way. Matthew 5, 27 and 28 is similar. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lust in the mind breaks the prohibition, you shall not commit adultery. Lust in the heart is like taking a step onto wickedness way. Solomon's counsel to his son and to us that we must turn away from wickedness way. Pass on by it. Avoid it. Refuse to take a single step on it. Never enter it. And certainly don't carry on walking on it. Heeding Solomon's counsel here must begin in our hearts. 
As Jesus said in Mark 7, 21 to 23, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Notice how Jesus links disobedience to some of the Ten Commandments with foolishness at the end of the list and identifies everything on the list All of these things that come from inside human hearts as evil things. Foolishness is equated with evil by Jesus. Solomon makes the same connection. In verses 16 and 17 of Proverbs 4, Solomon provides a couple of reasons to motivate his son and us readers not to consider turning onto wickedness way. Sleeping... Eating and drinking, as commentator Bruce Waltke points out, maintain and regenerate the body. And those who travel down wickedness way commit these bodily functions to the planning and execution of violent deeds. Solomon says that wicked people cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. Doing evil is depicted as a kind of sleep aid. The way some people take a dose of melatonin or Benadryl to help them sleep, wicked people have to make sure that they've committed some evil deed. As one writer puts it, they find there is nothing quite like a daily dose of evil to give them a good night's sleep. We observed a couple of weeks ago how bedtime can be a time of anxiety for Christians. We might sometimes be robbed of sleep because we feel guilty about some sin or failure from earlier in the day. Solomon depicts wicked people as having the opposite Problem. They are robbed of sleep if they didn't commit some sin to trip someone else up. This is similar to the earlier lesson from chapter 1, where Solomon warned his son of being enticed to join the criminal activities of a gang. If you ask the average non-Christian, do you lose sleep frustrated that you didn't hurt someone today? You likely won't hear someone say, yes. Generally, The human conscience still functions, and God's common grace still restrains people's sinful tendencies so that wicked people are not as wicked as they could be. Neither are we, by the way. Solomon is painting with a broad brush here. Nevertheless, as a warning to God's people, the point stands. Wickedness ultimately consumes And if we are to be wise, if we are to follow Christ, we must not flirt with or be drawn along by those who are walking on wickedness way. People traveling down the road are living in this world apart from the Holy Spirit. And Paul says that such people cannot please God. They don't want to please God and they cannot please God. They might be motivated by lots of other things, and their deeds might look pretty good, pretty clean on the outside. But Solomon isn't joking here. He is using figurative language, but he's telling the truth. Those who live to please themselves, those who live to please other people, those who live to please some false imagined God, all those traveling down wickedness way are consumed by evil. We must not join them. Their only hope is the gospel. 
Their only hope is that God might move them from wickedness way to wisdom way. Or to use Paul's language and shift that metaphor, their only hope is that God would deliver them from the domain of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of his beloved son. Or to use Jesus' language, they must enter through the narrow gate and begin walking on tribulation trail, which is the same road headed to the same destination as wisdom way. Yes, God must transfer them from one road to the other. And yes, they must choose to walk through the gate by trusting in Jesus. If you are one who is dominated by self, dominated by evil, or just clearly not dominated by a desire to please God and to follow Jesus, then you need to heed this call. You need to turn away from your sin. You need to believe the gospel, the good news. Jesus has died to pay for sins. Jesus has risen from the dead. And Jesus is alive now. And he offers new life to all who will trust in him. You want a fresh start? Jesus offers that to you and more. Back to Solomon's warning. In verse 17, he characterizes the staple diet of those who walk on wickedness way as the bread of wickedness and the wine of violence. Wickedness is nourished by further wickedness. Wicked people eat the bread of wickedness and then wash it down with the wine of violence. Jesus, the embodiment of God's wisdom, the builder of wisdom way, did the opposite. In John 4.34 we read, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. If you are following Jesus down wisdom way, you should be able to follow his example and say this too. Furthermore, in contrast to those traveling down wickedness way, Jesus summons us to a different staple diet. In John 6, 54 to 56, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This imagery has caused debate and disagreement throughout church history. Nevertheless, Jesus provides the key to what he means. Just a few verses earlier, he had said plainly, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Whoever believes has eternal life. The metaphor of eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood is simply a powerful image for trusting in Jesus for salvation. Thus, those who would travel down wisdom way, the road that ultimately leads to eternal life, must believe in Jesus. And as we trust Jesus, we will walk the way of wisdom, becoming like our master, empowered by the same Holy Spirit, who empowered him during his life on earth to please his heavenly Father. Eat Jesus' flesh, drink his blood, and then your food will become to do the will of our heavenly Father. And thus, we will be preserved from stepping out on wickedness way. The diet, their diet of wickedness and violence will have no appeal to us as we are satisfied with Jesus.
Solomon provides the final incentives for his son and us readers to heed his words in verses 18 and 19, where he describes the end of the road, the destination that each of these ways, each of these roads certainly leads. Look at verses 18 and 19. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Pastor Ray Ortland summarizes the point here well. God is saying there are only two ways. A gloomy disaster of a life without his wisdom and a bright success of a life with his wisdom. Back in verse 11, he had described this road as the way of wisdom or wisdom way. Here, he describes it as the path of the righteous or the road on which righteous people walk. Notice the connection between righteousness and wisdom. From our Christian perspective, we can and should read this as referring to those who are counted righteous by faith in Jesus. Thus, the Christian way of living in this world is being described here. Solomon compares the wise life of righteous people with the way sunlight gradually brightens the day from dawn until midday. We'll explore the implications of this in our conclusion this morning, but for the moment, just notice the gradual growth that is implied in the comparison. This gradual development should be an encouragement to all Christians but especially to those who feel frustrated with their lack of progress in the Christian life, to those who might be tempted to doubt the reality of their relationship with Jesus because of their immaturity or because of their sin. Growth is gradual. And just as our perception of the sun's brightness can be impeded by clouds or Canadian wildfire smoke, so also our perception of our growth in grace can be impeded by various things in our circumstances. But you can be sure the sun will shine and we will someday see its full brightness. Zoom in on that phrase. The ESV translates full day for just a second. In the King James Version and the New King James Version, the phrase is the perfect day. Out of more than 200 occurrences of this Hebrew word in the Old Testament, this is the only time a translation uses the English word perfect to translate it. Sometimes, however, a wrong translation can point to the right idea. This word basically means to establish or to set something in place or to prepare, and it very often has the connotation of permanence. Solomon is simply describing the fact that the sun daily reaches a high point and the daylight defines the day. But in using this natural daily phenomenon to illustrate the way righteous people live, he's suggesting that the practical righteous behavior of those who live according to God's wisdom will grow until it comes to a final completion. The rest of Scripture makes it clear that this will not happen for us until the perfect day, meaning the day of Jesus' return, the day of our resurrection, our final transformation to be like Jesus. 
One of my favorite verses is 1 John 3, 2, which says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. On that day, the sun will shine its brightest, and our righteousness will be complete. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Proverbs 3.19 then associates wickedness way with God's judgment. The Hebrew word translated deep darkness is a word commonly associated with God's wrath in the Old Testament. For example, consider Jeremiah 23.12, where the Lord is describing false prophets and ungodly priests among the Jews who have committed gross immorality and idolatry even in the Jerusalem temple. Therefore, Their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares Yahweh. This word was also used to describe the darkness of the ninth plague in Egypt, which was further described as a darkness that could be felt. Thus, darkness characterizes the road the wicked travel on. We see crimes often committed at night, in the dark, and we speak of back-alley deals. Here, Solomon depicts the wicked as stumbling along the road rather than walking confidently or running along unimpeded. The wicked often characterize themselves with pompous arrogance, boasting about their success, about their ill-gotten gain. But Solomon says that the truth of the matter is that they live stumbling along, And this stumbling is evidence of their being under God's judgment. However, in light of the contrast with the previous verse's anticipation of the full light of the midday sun, I can't help but think Solomon wants to draw attention to the final stumble of the wicked. As they can't sleep unless they cause someone else to stumble, so it is that God's punishment fits the crime as He causes them to stumble in a final fall into hell. As we read in Luke 17, 1 and 2, he said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. And Solomon says they are so swept up in darkness they won't see it coming. They can't see the destination of the road they're on, even when they're warned. Jesus said in John 12, 35, the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. As one writer summarizes, not knowing or understanding the consequences of one's actions is an essential component of sin and folly. What hope do such people have? Only that they would come to the light. This is what Solomon expects of his son and his readers. And in light of verse 18, in conclusion this morning, I want to consider how light characterizes wisdom way. I want to see clearly how light dominates the path of the righteous. Christians are instructed to walk in the light, by the light, and to the light. Verse 18's description of the increasing brightness of the light encompasses this progression. Let's first consider walking in the light. 1 John 1.7 says, But if we walk in the light as God is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What does John mean by walking in the light? Well, starting at the end of the verse, John's logic suggests that walking in the light is evidence of being cleansed from all sin by Jesus' blood. Only those whose sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus can walk in the light. Then if we consider the opposite from verse 6, where John writes, If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We can see that walking in the light must have something to do with our lives matching our profession. Those who walk in the light are those who claim to have fellowship with God and actually do have fellowship with God, shown by speaking and practicing the truth. Likewise, in verse 8, John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Thus, walking in the light must include admitting our sin. So what does it mean to walk in the light? It means to freely admit our sin, confidently believing that the stain of our sin has been completely washed away the moment we began trusting Jesus, who shed his blood on the cross to provide forgiveness for all of our sin. It also means pursuing a life of truth-telling and truth-doing. We seek to believe the truth, speak the truth, and live out the truth. And when we fail to believe the truth, speak the truth, or live out the truth, we rest secure in the cleansing our Savior has provided on the cross. Notice also what verse 7 says the result of walking in the light is. But if we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Wouldn't you expect it to say, if we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with God? Thus, walking in the light is not a solo stroll down Wisdom Way. Rather, it is a community march, even a parade of victory, walking through the world, celebrating our champion's victorious death and resurrection. In doing so, walking in the light together, we admit our sins and failures not only to God, not only to God, but to each other also. Fellowship with one another entails getting to know each other. Fellowship with one another entails that we become genuinely authentic with each other, sharing all of life together, the good and the bad. You see, light exposes the truth. And if we are walking in the light together, then there shouldn't be any hiding. There shouldn't be any mask wearing. There shouldn't be any hypocritical, self-righteous posturing. The truly righteous, the truly righteous are those who have been counted righteous by faith, apart from consideration of our works. So coming into the light doesn't become an issue of laying out our good deeds to see how awesome we are. It's just the opposite. There shouldn't be any covering of our weakness, brokenness, failure, sin, and unrighteousness. Walking in the light excludes boasting, prideful posturing, and hypocrisy. Our sins have been forgiven 
The stain of guilt has been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. Can't we celebrate in that and not be afraid to admit our failures to each other? Not only are we to be walking in the light, however, we are also to be walking by the light. What does this mean? Consider a famous verse from Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Just about every English translation I own has the word feet here. But the complete Jewish Bible reflects the Hebrew more literally. Your word is a lamp for my foot and light on my path. The singular foot is what is written, and God's word being a lamp for my singular foot is an important part of the image, I believe. The image being painted is of a a person walking through a forest with a lantern in their hand, and the lantern is only bright enough to light the way for the very next step of your foot. Consider the way a modern flashlight often only provides a small circle of light just as big as your foot. God's Word provides that kind of guidance, just enough light to take the next step. We should seek God's guidance for our decision-making from His words in the Bible, but we should not necessarily expect this guidance to give us specific, long-range, big-picture answers in the specific details of our lives. Pastor Ken has often gifted high school graduates with a little book by Kevin DeYoung on seeking God's guidance. Let me remind you of the excellent title, Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will, or How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, Writing in the Sky, etc., While this very short book certainly doesn't answer all the questions it raises, it is still among the top ten books I'd recommend every Christian, especially every young Christian, read. My very favorite quote from that little book goes like this. So we can stop pleading with God to show us the future and start living and obeying like we are confident that He holds the future. God's Word is a lamp for my foot. It provides guidance in the form of moral instruction, commands, and principles that I can apply to the decisions I need to make. It is also a light on my path. That is, it works a little bit like a street light. My wife and I have observed since we've lived here that streets are not nearly as well lit here as they are where we used to live in Texas. Nevertheless, the point of street lights usually is to highlight the boundaries of the road, isn't it? Likewise, God's word in scripture provides the moral boundaries in which we must live. In the rest of Psalm 119, in the rest of that particular stanza where these words are found, the focus is in the need for us to delight in and obey God's word in the scriptures, especially in the face of suffering and opposition. That's how we experience God's word as a light for our paths. Jesus also illuminates how, how this should work for us. In John eleven nine, 9, in response to the disciples expressing concern about Jesus returning to Jerusalem after his life had been threatened, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Now, to get the point, you've got to remember that earlier in John's gospel, Jesus identified himself as the light of the world. 
Thus, instead of the disciples being worried and stumbling because of their fear, they should keep their eyes focused on the light, which is Jesus himself. Jesus is basically saying, watch me and follow me. Don't worry about opposition and enemies. That's a word for us today in the light of our culture. Watch Jesus. Follow Jesus. And don't be so worried about our opposition and our enemies. Don't get distracted. Thus, when we are seeking guidance for decision-making, we need to fight against the temptation to want God to tell us exactly what to do. Instead, we are to look for Jesus in the Scriptures. This is not merely to ask, what would Jesus do? This is not always a helpful question. We are not Jesus. So we shouldn't always assume that what Jesus did is what we should do, or we shouldn't assume that we're clever enough to figure out what Jesus would do in this situation were he here. Instead, we need to prioritize looking for Jesus throughout the Bible. I believe doing that actually helps us decide the issues of daily life far more than trying to see if the Bible spells out a specific direction for our next move. And looking for Jesus in the Bible is certainly far more helpful than expecting God to speak in your heart or to drop a sign in your circumstances that you've got to figure out or interpret. Solomon told his son in Proverbs 4.12, If you run, you will not stumble. And Jesus says that the one who sees the light of this world does not stumble. In other words, the words of the author of Hebrews, we won't stumble if we run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what it means to walk by the light. Finally, we are to be walking to the light. Coming to the light, coming to Jesus, who is the light, begins our journey on the narrow road, wisdom way. Then our lives are to be characterized by walking in the light and walking by the light, but we are also walking toward the light, the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, the light that is our final destination. John characterizes our initial believing in Jesus as coming to the light in John 3, 20 and 21, which says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Light exposes works, both good and bad. This fits with what we saw earlier in 1 John 1. But it's the end of the journey I want to close with this morning. Wisdom way leads to the new Jerusalem, which is characterized by a light that outshines the sun. Consider Revelation 21, 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The shining brightness of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ will light up the new Jerusalem where everyone who trusts in Jesus for salvation will live for eternity. This is the full light of day that Solomon perhaps alluded to, the eternal day, for there will be no more night in the new creation, no more domain of darkness, no more deeds of darkness. 
Only one way leads to this destination. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter said in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Come to the light. Enter by the narrow gate. Eat his flesh. Drink his blood. Trust in Jesus. Walk on wisdom way and turn away from wickedness way. Repent and believe the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for telling us so much about the way life is to be ordered in this world. Thank you for inscribing your wisdom in a book. Certainly not exhaustively. Your wisdom is limitless. And we thank you that you've given us such a framework for living in the truth of Scripture. But more importantly than that, in the Word of God, you have given us Jesus himself. You have shown us and explained to us just what it cost to save sinners like us. And you've shown us that we have a Savior who was willing to pay the cost. And he did it. And it worked. We celebrate that reality every time we take communion and every time we gather together. And let us be more diligent about celebrating it in our day-to-day lives as well. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us to look back to the cross, to revel in and to rest in the victory that was won there. The forgiveness of our sins, the cleansing of the stain of sin, and the victory over the power of sin also. And thank you for the glorious resurrection that our Savior didn't say dead, that his sacrifice was accepted on our behalf and in our place. And we can be saved. We can be taken off of wickedness way. We can be put on wisdom way. And we pray that you would do that for all who have not yet trusted in Christ. Help us, we pray, be diligent about proclaiming the message pointing to Jesus in our conversations, pointing to Jesus by the choices that we make, pointing to Jesus in the ways that we talk about life and death and ultimate issues of life. Thank you for your spirit that lives in us to empower us to be faithful, to pursue righteousness in our lives, and to actually reflect the truths of the gospel that we say we believe without hypocrisy. Forgive us for our failures. Move us forward along this road. And thank you for promising and guaranteeing that we're going to make it to the finish line. Help us to be satisfied with that, to be confident in that, and to keep moving forward step by step. Walking by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name we pray.